you've got to have purpose and passion in your life. You can't get up in the morning with no real plan or nothing to do. And that's what I did. I got up in the morning and the guys were going to go and play golf. The rest of my mates were working, were in Harcourts or in real estate. And so you sort of get up and you think, well, what will I do today? You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. We're proud to present Courageous Conversations, a podcast series focusing on the tough decisions people have made to put themselves on a pathway to success. This episode is brought to you by Connect Now, who makes the business of moving easier for both you and your clients. For more information, visit connectnow.com.au. Please welcome your host, Leanne Pilkington. Hey everyone, Leanne Hilkington with you for the latest edition of Courageous Conversations and with me I've got my very good friend Mike Green who is the MD of Harcourt. Hey Mike, how are you? I'm very good Leanne, great to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, I really appreciate it. So firstly, I'm sure that everybody who's listening knows all about Harcourt's but do you want to just give me a, a quick history when it started and how it's grown because you've grown a massive business in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. Thanks, Leanne. I mean, Harcourts originally was started by J.B. Harcourt in New Zealand in 1888. Obviously, in the early stages of a very different sort of business, it was a more of a general store, I guess, that did real estate, did auctioneering, funnily enough, right back then. It really, though, gained any sort of momentum in 1984, 1985. Uh, Stephen Collins, who owned offices in Christchurch, uh, Collins Real Estate merged with Harcourt & Co., and that became Harcourts. Since then, we've grown in New Zealand, obviously. We sit at the moment about 205 offices, about 22.5% market share now. So we're the market leader in NZ. And then in 97, Irene and I moved to Brisbane from Auckland. We were a franchisee of Harcourts in New Zealand. And we moved to Brisbane to kick Harcourts off in Australia. And that was 97. So we're now, what, 26 years on. And from, I think at the time, we had about 80 offices in New Zealand. Obviously, over the last 20-odd years, we've grown that to 205. And then here in Australia, 430 offices. And then over the last 15 years, gone into other markets. We're in the US, uh, 45 offices down the west coast of the US, offices in Canada, Mexico, China, Indonesia, and South Africa now. And Fiji, of course, which is part of the New Zealand operation. South Africa, we've been in 2010. We're number three over there. And here in Australia, number two terms of volume and value of sales completed. So, yeah, it's, it's been, I mean, a pretty exciting journey, obviously. Good journey. Yeah. I've never asked you this. What is it like managing or overseeing those international operations? Because the way of doing business is very different, even in the US, but compared to, you know, China and some of the Asian countries, it'd be a very different way of doing business, right? Yeah, very much. I mean, it's like, you know, realistically, it's like herding cats. You, know, you don't know. That's not that different. Yeah. Well, it's actually like just like running a real estate office, isn't it, really? Yeah, exactly. No, well, it was interesting, man, because when we moved to Australia, I thought that Kiwis and Aussies were the same. And, yeah. you know, you guys had an accent, but outside of that, we were all basically the same. But, of course, you realise that's just not the case. And the differences, cultural, social, geographic, immense. And so how we did business in New Zealand, we had to change here in Australia. And then, of course, you know, we started in Queensland. And when you go from Queensland to New South Wales, for instance, it's like going to another country. So they're all very, very different. The U.S. is very, very different again. And I guess our experience moving here to Australia certainly gave me an appreciation for the local element. So in essence, we're good at franchising. So we're good at putting systems and processes, I guess, in place. 
but where we need the local help is at a local level. So the best thing we've done, we did a joint venture in South Australia with Michael Brock, and we did a joint venture in Tasmania and in Victoria, NPRE in Victoria, Tony Morrison and, and M&M in, in Tasmania. And where we did that, we basically we brought our sort of franchising ability, if you like, and joined with a strong local person who knew the market, knew the nuances. That's when it's been really successful. So Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we learned that. And of course, in South Africa, we partnered with a company that are obviously local. And so where we've done that, it's gone really, really well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you and I spoke on stage at the Rise Leadership event earlier this year, and the conversation was around the second act, if you will. So I would love you to share again. You retired. How long ago was it? October 19, 2019. 2019. And it turns out you weren't very good at retirement. No, I was really, really bad at it. And it's it's funny in hindsight because it was sort of one of those things that I did, not necessarily because I was really passionate about retiring or really wanted to, but it just seemed the right thing. And I, I sort of got on a path and I'd been in this seat for a little over 20 years. And so there's a lot to that, right? But there's a lot of conversation around the fact that CEOs really shouldn't stay five years, right? So there's that. And then how old were you? When I retired? Yeah. 57. Yeah. So there's also that conversation that if you can retire before you're 60, that's what really successful people have got the ability to do, right? So there's all of these outside voices going. Yes. What you should do. Yeah. It rings in your head, you know, oh, you don't want to be the coach that stays two or three seasons too long. You know, at 57, I'm not old, but I'm certainly in the latter part of the career side. And so it's sort of everything was telling me that that was the course. And it is a bit of a success thing. Oh, you know, I retired when I was in my fifties or whatever. And so that's how that happened. In fairness, I mean, 20 years in the sea, it is, well, you know, leading any sort of organisation is tough, whether it be a single office or a you know, 900 offices. Yeah, my hair is not naturally this colour, I can tell you. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure it was, yeah. Oh, it used to be 20 years ago, not now. <laughs> yeah, so you know. I mean, and so what time? Like I'd, the phone would ring and I'd see the name on it and they go, oh, no, I don't. So, you know, you do get to that point. That was how it sort of came about. And you know, Aaron and I had, had done a plan because lots of people say, well, when you retire, you don't want to retire and 18 months later have a heart attack and die. So but we had a plan and we were going to travel and we had grandkids, going to spend time and thought we had it all sorted out. Yep. And then? And then it turned to custom. And, <laughs> yeah, I, and I guess so part of the reason it turned to custom was obviously timeline was the end of 2019, COVID hit. So the travel part of the plan was not an option. Yeah, exactly. So that certainly had a huge impact. And people have asked me off, if it hadn't been for COVID, do you think it would have been all right? And I, I don't believe it would have. I think I would have had the same issue, but certainly COVID brought it to a head a lot quicker. Of the things that I learned was you've got to have purpose and passion in your life. You can't get up in the morning with no real plan or nothing to do. And that's what I did. I got up in the morning and few of the guys were going to go and play golf. The rest of my mates were working, were in Harcourts or in, in real estate. And so you sort of get up, you think, well, what will I do today? Your grandkids are great, but you can't see them every day. And, you know, they do their own thing. And I found very, very quickly that you can go from being very busy, very focused, lots of energy, lots of passion and enthusiasm to being quite morose. And I was amazed at how fast I went from being. How fast was it? Five months. Right. Talk to me about five months in. How were you feeling? What were you doing? And what was the impact it was having on, in particular, your wife? (laughs) <laughs> you probably should get her to explain Actually, that. Actually, I will. You know what? You can invite her tonight when you get home. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. 
Well, I think one of the lessons I learned through all of this was you've got to live your best life to be your best self. And that became really apparent. So after four or five months, I was not getting up. I was staying in bed and watching videos on my phone till 10 or 11 in the morning because there was no reason to get up. So I was a bit, and I wouldn't say depressed because that's probably overstating it, but I just felt like I started thinking, what was the point? What is the point? Yeah. You know, and so when you start thinking that way, you start, I, I lost my enthusiasm and I wasn't fun to be around. And I was a really ordinary husband and I was a very ordinary, I was still obviously a shareholder in Harcourts, but I spent more time sitting on the sidelines throwing rocks than See, actually. That doesn't sound like you, Mike, not at all. I, I know, you're surprised, but it, I was like that for a little while. <laughs> And you get angry. You have an underlying anger, which is not me. I mean, I can get angry like anyone, but I'm not an angry person. But it became that way. And I think I became frustrated and I was doubting everything and I was wondering why I did anything. And so I was surprised how quick I could get into that funk. And I used to think people talk about mental health and I think, oh, just give yourself an uppercut. Pull your socks up. If you're feeling a bit blue, pull your head in, you know. And And I couldn't understand how people would get into these dark spaces. And I didn't get into a dark space, but I certainly was going down that track and I thought, my God. So it changed my view around mental health as well. And it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your background, doesn't matter what you do, you're just as vulnerable, I guess, if things change or you have things that impact you strongly, you're just as vulnerable as anyone. So it was a really interesting thing. And that's what woke me up. I woke up one day and I said, Darren, I can't do this. I've got to do something or I'm just going to get worse and I'm not living my best life and I'm not a good person. And so I've changed it. So what did you do? A good friend of mine owns uh, four Harcourt's offices, were our best friends, and she was she came through property management and she was keen to sort of have someone as a sales manager. And we were away. We went away for the weekend and we were sitting having a drink. And I said, how would you like it if I came and worked in your business as your sales manager? And she said, oh, you know, laughed and said, yeah, good on you. Thought I was joking. And I said, no, I'm deadly serious. And I want to do something. The time, I guess, I probably enjoyed myself most in reflection was when I was running my own real estate business and I was working with the agents. And, and I said, I'd love to do it. And I said, you don't have to pay me. I'm, it's not about a job. It's just I want something. What a bloody opportunity for somebody to have you come well, in yeah. and sell for free. Hello. Yeah, but you never know because, you know, I haven't actually sold a house or managed a sales no. team for a while. And the team might have all run screaming from the building, right, knowing that That's you were coming right. in as sales manager. <laughs> it could have been terrible. And it's funny, you asked me at Rise, you asked me when I came back into the business, did I ever think people might not be happy? And it's interesting because when I went into that sales business, did I think I wouldn't be able to do it? And it didn't really occur to me that it wouldn't until I was in the middle of it and I was doing one-on-ones with salespeople and I did a listening presentation. And I'm thinking, holy crap, I hope I actually can do this because if I can, it's going to be a bit ordinary. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Even you had these moments of, oh, my God, can I do, you know, that little voice that we all get in our head. That's awesome. Um, So it obviously worked out okay being a sales manager. Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. It went really well. That was great. And I loved it. And it was really good for me to reconnect with the coalface. You know, like it's, I've been out of a real estate office for quite some time. so. I remember at Rise, you actually said to me, you realised how many ridiculous emails head office send out on a daily basis. And I did share that with my team. I'm not sure it's impacted their behaviour, though. (laughs) Well, it's so many things you learn, and that's one of the things. And you know, I get really frustrated. We send all this communication out. No one reads the emails. You think, why don't you just read them? You need to know about these things. Until you go and sit in an office and you get so many bloody emails, especially from us. I thought, no wonder no one reads them. 
So you learn a lot of things like that and just the coalface stuff. I mean, you're working with a salesperson who's got an appraisal to do that's got to do a CMA, get the data, sit in front of a potential seller, go through the marketing plan. You know, I learned all about marketing costs firsthand, you know, just what it does cost to put a listing on RMA and REA and so forth. So it was really good in that sense. It was very, very good. But the reality was that I wasn't prepared to do, I guess, the time that I needed to do it to do it justice. So when I was running my own real estate office, I was out Saturday and Sunday. I was going to open homes. I'm recruiting. I'm out most nights. And at this stage in my life and with Irene and with grandkids, I wasn't prepared to commit that level of time that I did as a business owner. And so for Jackie, I said, hey, I'm happy doing this, but it's not giving you what you actually need. You need a proper person focused. And that had been, so I was nearly two years into retirement and we're going through COVID and there were things going on in this business. And so it was just, I thought, no, I need to step out of this and I need to get back into what I was doing. And that's why. Come back, move aside. (laughs) And so talk me through that. I mean, obviously I'm making the assumption that you're the major shareholder, but I actually don't know that. I know you're a shareholder. Yeah, I and I own half and Paul Wright with for 38 yeah, years. Yeah, no Paul, yeah. And the, he owns his family interest on the other half. So, yes. So there's no one other than Paul that's going to stop you taking your job back effectively. Well, and Irene. And Irene, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, but, I mean, there's other concerns and we'd put a CEO in, so there was obviously an issue there that needed to be addressed. And when a new leader comes in, often people change and that leader has their own people and so how would that work? Business owners, I mean, I'd spoken to a lot of our key business owners on the way out and sort of said, hey, this is where I was at. So it was going to be a re-engaging with them and sort of explaining why suddenly I wanted to be back. So the, well, one- and the, other, the other thing is that at your age, it would be fair to assume that you're not going to be back long term, right? Oh, and so, not yeah. to assume that. <laughs> We're about the same age, so I can, you know, I would have thought it's well, fair I, to assume. One of the things that I did learn in all this, through this process is I think we get put in boxes or we get, it's like that, like you said before, you read lots of things, CEOs shouldn't stay longer than five to seven years. That's the maximum lifespan. I mean, that's baloney. I was in the seat for 20 and I'd like to think that at least 10 of those were good years and, and obviously a few more. I think we get boxed and we get thoughts that become truths and they don't necessarily mean they are. And I spent quite a bit of time, funnily enough, just prior to retirement with Brian White just through some stuff we did with REIP. And Brian at the time was 74. Yep. And was just as focused and driven. Yeah, incredible. Maybe not quite as much as he was when he was 44, but he was certainly still, you know, I'm 61 now. That's another 13 years away before I'm that age, you know, his age. So I think the reality is one thing not to do is to buy into the stereotypes or the general rules that people have. You don't have to retire in your 50s. You don't have to retire at all. And that was one of the things I learned was do what you want to do when you want to do it. Live your best life. And if it means you work and one day you drop dead at your desk, so be it if that's what you want to do. Don't you know? listen to the noise. So, I mean, there was a, obviously how long am I coming back for? But at this stage, my intention is I'm here for as long as I can do the role and as long as I love the role. And if that's five years, it's five. And if it's 15, it's 15. It'll be what it'll be. I was going to ask you, how will you do retirement better the second time around? But what I'm hearing is there might not be a second time around. There may not. I don't know. I don't know the answer. What I'm not going to do is prejudge or pre-decide, which is what I did before, and that doesn't work. While I'm passionate and believe I can add value, then I need to do that. And if I get to a point where I don't, well, then probably be enough people tell me. 
Yeah, exactly. You've got a pretty strong corporate team around you, so I'm sure they won't think twice to let you know. They might have to duck or sort of <laughs> open the office door and go, oh, Mike, by the time, by the way, it's time to go, and then close the door quickly behind them. Yes. But yeah. that is one of the downsides of trying to have a very much an open door, no sacred cows approach. And I told all of our people at different times, hey, you got something to say, say it. There's no agendas, no no recriminations, none of that stuff. We've just all got to be focused. So the downside of that is they do. They do. <laughs> it's a better way, though, to have it rather than people being frightened to communicate with you. Every now and then it would be nice to run a dictatorship, but I think overall you're right. Yeah, a benign dictatorship. That's what we used to say. It doesn't work these days. That was probably 20 years ago we could get away with that, not today. Exactly right. And so I promised you today we'd be able to talk about REIP, Real Estate Industry Partners. Yes. Talk to me, what is that group and why did you decide with others that it was needed? Yeah, well, it originally came out of we tried to launch an industry portal, which I know had been done in the past, and we got a group of us got together and said, we need to do it again or we need to try and do it. And it was to bring competition into that space. You know, the costs are significant. And people say, oh, you know, but the sellers pay VPA, so it's, we don't actually pay it. It's just not true. It's a very, very short view. The reality is the more a seller has to pay on marketing, the less they're going to want to pay in commissions. There's only a certain amount. So those costs were continuing to grow and feelingly unabated. And so the motivation was to start an industry portal and get the industry support to bring competition to that space to help drive prices down. So that's where we started. And for various reasons, it failed. And it failed, and I'll be open about the reasons. The first one was just not enough money. You need to spend tens of millions of dollars to not only develop the portal, but to market it because you've got to get the eyeballs. And if you don't get the eyeballs, you're buggered. Um, So there was that. And then the other part of it was the initial group were ourselves, Ray White, Rain and Horn, Hookers, Place, Coronas. And so it was largely franchise groups. And there was quite a bit of talk, oh, these are just the franchisors, the big franchisors wanting to take advantage of the industry or, you know, the independence and what have you. So there was that perception that it was just the big franchises again trying to do something. And that didn't help. And those were the two primary reasons. The money was the major reason. So that didn't work. But what did happen was that we had to collaborate and we had to take the brand hats off. And we're fierce competitors, as everyone in the industry is. But during that time, we had to actually put that to one side and work together. And we actually found that we probably had more in common than not. Because there's some pretty impressive people around that group that you've just mentioned. And it's tough, you know, like fiercely competing in the same space for many of us. So as we went through that process, what then became apparent, and this is where we get a little bit contentious, just how fragmented our industry is, and that things like Peoplebrooks came in and smacked us all around, spent millions and millions of dollars on telly, telling everyone that commissary was a terrible thing, and no one really fired a shot as an industry. And any of us that did it as a brand, we got labelled as it's only self-interest and what have you. And and there were other things. And as we got into COVID, we were having board meetings once a month, getting on the phones, getting on Zoom, and things like trying to make sure that the government didn't close us down. So we had people doing open homes in different parts of the country in total contravention of the COVID rules and what have you. So as a collective group, we'd someone say, hey, Mike, you know, one of the Harcourts boys has put a flag up last weekend, and I'd just get on the phone and we'd... So we yeah, yeah. A lot of yeah, work. I mean, you were doing the same thing in New South Wales from an REI perspective, right? Yeah. So we did a lot of collaboration, but what became apparent was you've got 
REIA, which is the national body, which is the preeminent leadership body for the industry. You've got state REIs, and they lead in their states, and they do lots of great work with the members. You've got franchisors who operate across the country, and, you know, we have all our same issues. We've got CEOs in each state and their filters and, you know, all that stuff that goes on. And then you've got a whole lot of independents that operate on their own, but part of maybe collective groups or work closely with the REI, whatever it was. So all these different groups and leaders and agendas, and there's no single focus, our belief was, there's no single focus that talks about the real value of the industry, that goes out and actively promotes the good stuff. You know, you normally see real estate agents on TV running away from the current affair reporter who's trying to interview them, and we just don't think that's right. And we say there should be more work done on relevance and getting good news stories out. And then the whole protection's a wrong word, but, you know, our industry, making sure that our industry thrives, that the offices are profitable, irrespective of brand or independent or franchise or marketing group or whatever, it doesn't matter. The offices have got to be profitable and strong for our industry to be strong. And so we became very sort of focused on that. And we started talking about what could we do collaboratively and we spent time with you and Tim yeah spent time with the guys up here in Queensland REIA with our Tasmanian Institute tried to spend some time with the Victorian Institute but the leader at the time wasn't terribly enamored with us leadership there now so maybe yeah he's got a different view of the world and so that's where that came out so REIP is that group of people and so the focus for REIP right now the current focus is about data right yeah. You want to talk about that? Yes. So we looked at it and said, well, how best, what can we do? What could we work together on that would really help the industry and could become something that everyone gets behind that unites us as an industry, forgetting all the competition? And data seems to be the obvious one. You know, lots of people talk to us about the data and well, what are we doing about data? And for years, we've given it away and third parties have taken it, bundled it up and sold it back to us at stupid amounts of money. And we've got the best data. We take all the risks. We've got people out on the field collecting the most current data there is. So why wouldn't we do something with it ourselves? And we sort of felt like a bit like the Beverly Hillbillies. We've got all this oil in the ground, but we've got no clue how to get it out. And we've got no clue what to do with it if we did. And we talked about starting our own data company and data lakes and all that stuff. But it's just we're real estate agents, you know, and, and I think we need to stick to our knitting. So we formed a joint venture with Velocity, which is a data company. And we put some parameters around it. So pricing control had to stay with us. There had to be a free version. And so we put that joint venture together and we're now pooling all of our data through the JV partner. They have all the value of general data. We've done some strategic partnerships with some portals and with some data companies. And so we're sitting now at about 80 to 90% of total national data we've got in the platform and we've been done the trial offices, pilot offices over the last three months and we're just about to go live with a data product that yep. if you're And so just so everyone understands, a data product that would compete with who in the market right now? Well the data providers, Core Logic, Price Finder, yep. you know, that's yep. where most of the agents are getting their data and it's it is, the platform yep. we've got is REIP Nexus. It provides all the access to all the same data that you would out of one of the other other places. There's a custom CMA in it, so you can do your comparable sales listings and sales, and you can print that out and you can single entry, user-friendly, and it's got all the live data in it. 
and there's a free version. If you're a member of REIP and you contribute your data, then you get access to this at no cost. And so membership means you are contributing your data to the broader, yeah, okay. Exactly right. And, yeah. and, no and is there a cost to membership? No, there's no charge to be a member and there's no charge for the access to the platform. The data. And that's part of our, one of our pillars is profitability of the industry and how, you know, what more could you do or what better way of doing it than take our data, package it up and give it back to us at no cost. And that's yep. how it should be. So that's, that was one of those pillars. And we didn't want to put any impediments in front. We didn't want anyone to say, oh, you know, but you're just going to charge us a gazillion or you're doing something bad with it or you're floating or whatever. So we want to get rid of all those impediments. There's no cost. If you don't like it, don't use it. But if you can use it and it's free and it's good and we're pretty confident it is, what's well, a no-brainer, yeah. you know? Why not? And the wider picture or the longer-term picture is that we're actually taking control of the future of our industry, you know, because if we can control the data, then it gives us choices and options. And I'm not suggesting that we would in any way collude or do anything silly, but if we don't control our future, someone else is going to. And so yeah. it's better we do it. Yeah, I completely agree with you, which is kind of a record for us, isn't it? But, yeah, we can see what's happened with the portals. We have had the opportunity to actually work together as an industry, and you and I have been around long enough to know how many times we've tried to do that and have not been able to. So data seems to be a really good opportunity to see how we can all work together. So we've been chatting for over 30 minutes, which is not unusual for us, right? So that's unusual. I know. I'm very proud of us. I'm very proud of us. But I just wanted to say a massive thank you for being prepared to share because when somebody like you is prepared to share the challenges and be a little bit vulnerable, it has a much bigger impact on the broader community. So it's a really important conversation and thank you so much for being prepared to have it. Oh, thank you, Leanne. I did a, a webinar or a podcast with Lee Woodward. Yeah, I listened to it. Not long after I got back into the seat and I was, I was a bit sort of, I don't know if it, at the time, I said, oh, why would you want to do that? But I had a lot of feedback. And I guess it's an issue that we all face. And there's lots of people in the industry that have been around a long time that are thinking about the future. And so, yeah, hopefully it, if it helps a few people with some better understanding of the future, well, great. Yeah, and I'm sure it will. So thanks again. I will speak to you very soon. Great. Thank you, Leanne. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Courageous Conversations with thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agency's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.